Please be advised, all music tracks used in this production are sole property of Kelson Communications and are original compositions. Thank you. To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public to the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. Welcome to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. Today I have with me an extremely, extremely wonderful guest, and that's Dr. Lakia Cherish. She is the Chief Executive Officer of the Network for Social Work Management, which is an international membership organization dedicated to strengthening leadership in the health and human services areas. Under her leadership, the network has grown globally and introduced new innovative programming that meets the needs of social work and human services leaders everywhere. At her previous position, with 2U Inc., a technology company partnering with prestigious universities to place degree programs online. She was a senior regional field manager for the University of Southern California School of Social Work's online Masters of Social Work program. Dr. Cherry was in charge of spearheading national partnerships and managing field education agency development initiatives. She has also held a variety of direct service positions in the not-for-profit sector, and volunteers during her free time. Dr. Cherry currently serves on the board for the Congressional Research Institute for Social Work and Policy, sometimes affectionately known by the acronym CRISP. She earned her Master's of Science in Social Work from Columbia University and her Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and Legal Studies from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Dr. Cherry earned her doctorate in social work from the USC Suzanne Zwark Peck School of Social Work. Her capstone project, Change Makers of Color, a model for racial equity in the nonprofit sector, focuses on addressing the racial leadership gap in the nonprofit sector. Dr. Cherry holds a certificate in nonprofit executive leadership from the National Human Services Assembly in collaboration with the fundraising school at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, the executive education program at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University, and ASU Lotus Star Center for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Innovation. She is also a starting block fellow Hashtag I am remarkable facilitator and certified dare to lead facilitator as well. And ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce to all of my listening audience the outstanding and stupendous Dr. Lakia Cherry. Dr. Cherry, thank you so much and welcome to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. Thank you, Silas. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thanks a lot for taking time out of your busy schedule and Certainly, I see your schedule is busy. You quite often I, you know, get a chance to look at some of your uh, things on social media. And I'm always astounded by some of the, you know, the outstanding things that you say and, and the posts that you put out. And, and you do a lot to encourage other people, which is one of the things that is a foundation of social work. So to get the conversation started. Tell the listeners a little bit about your background, and then I want you to talk about what drew you to social work. Okay. 
Well, um, I am originally from San Bernardino, California. I grew up in a single parent household. And if you know San Bernardino, if you're familiar with it, you know that it's primarily a working class community with a low median income. And just growing up in that environment, I often saw things within my community that didn't sit well with me. I was very observant and I noticed disparities, um, particularly among communities of color versus um, white communities. I also noticed um, different inequities. Um, these are things that I noticed uh, at a young age and paid close attention to. So originally, those observations led to me having an interest in politics and wanting to get involved in policy change and politics. So I spent many years in high school working on political campaigns. I used to canvas and do telephone banking, and that was just my interest. I went to UC Santa Cruz wanting to study political science and eventually perhaps run for office. But somewhere along the way, I think it was around the Al Gore election, I lost interest due to a lot that went on in our country um, and politically and with that campaign. And I just lost hope. And so I changed my interest and I developed an interest in psychology and wanting to know more about people and why they are the way they are and why they think a certain way and just their overall functioning and processing. And I realized that with just a bachelor's degree in psychology, I wouldn't be able to do much. So then I decided to get my bachelor's degree in legal studies as well. Around that time, my goal was to go to law school and become a civil rights attorney or do something around social justice. And so the latter years of my bachelor's degree, I ended up going to Washington, D.C., where I interned with the Department of Justice Special Litigation Section, and we investigated allegations of racial profiling. Um, allegations of abuse within nursing homes. I learned a lot about um, the Stanford prison experiment and about the innocence project. And I decided that I wanted to do my part to fight injustices within our system. So ultimately I decided that I wanted to be an attorney and that this was the best way to do it. And so I began preparing the latter years of my bachelor's program to get into law school. I got into law school. I chose a program, a school rather, that had a MSW JD program and that focused on the Innocence Project. But once I got there, I realized law school wasn't necessarily for me, that people's opinion of lawyers and what lawyers could do as well as how they perceive lawyers um, kind of motivated my motivated and inspired me to go that route 
Although if I would have thought about it more on my own, it might not have been the decision I made. But due to other people saying that they see me as an attorney and that's something that they think I could do, I was so impressed by that that I went that route. Once I was in law school, I realized I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. I thought it would be a lot more hands-on, and I thought the people and the culture would be different than what it was. And I, I mean, to be honest, Silas, I never thought that I would be a social worker. I remember being in law school, and I had an interview at the San Diego Public Defender's Office, and it was for a summer internship. I think they called it externship. Mm-hmm. And during my interview, I was telling the interviewer why I wanted this particular job and just what I felt that I could do. And he said to me, lawyers don't do that. That's what social workers do. Oh, wow. Look at that. <laughs> and... <laughs> Exactly. I remember being so stunned and floored because I didn't know social workers did those type of things because in my community that I grew up in, social workers had a bad rap. And so I only saw social workers as people who took children. Um, Oftentimes in my community, parents would, if someone was misbehaving, they'd say, you don't want the social workers to take you. Mm, yes, I I remember those the, those statements that were used to be made, and 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 gave that very very onerous viewpoint of this profession, you know, that we call social work. So and and I, and I wanted to just kind of jump in there because you mentioned two really really um, well known studies or, or research projects, uh, and I and I thought it would be great if you could kind of enlighten our listeners to the Innocence Project and a little bit about the Stanford Prison Experiment. Okay. Well, the Stanford Prison Experiment, I I think, so I haven't looked it up for a while, but there is a professor at UC Santa Cruz. He's still there, Dr. Craig Haney. And so he was involved with the original Stanford Prison Experiment. Mm-hmm. And from what I recall, um, I mean, Silas deletes us if I'm wrong, but (laughs) 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 sorry. (laughs) You threw me for a loop when you asked. I'm like, dang, like, can I Google this really quickly? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, What I remember, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, the experiment if I remember correctly, was where they took the prisoners and they gave them badges and made them uh, play the role of the the prison guard. Yeah, yeah. It was like about power and control, right? And when people get access to power, the ways that they begin to change when they have that access to power. Yes, yes. And that was a very profound study. So when you said that, I was like, wow, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I didn't mean to throw you for a loop, but it, I was like, yeah, the listeners would probably like to know a little bit about that. But yeah, that. that- no, no. And I agree. It's, I think this goes back to our initial conversation before you got started, where it's 
everything you just said, I remember that part, but then I didn't want to start BSing. (laughs) (laughs) And it's completely wrong. And someone's like, that's not what it is. (laughs) Like, really? (laughs) Also, because I'm sure you're going to edit this. um, I mentioned that. I talk a lot and I mean, I have stories like, and so in the beginning, when you asked me, you know, a little bit about my background, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you wanted all of that. Um, I don't know if you had an idea, just what you wanted. Uh, but I just started talking. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. because (laughs) And just kind of like talking, it's just like having a conversation and obviously, you know, as as the producer, after the interview is done, you know, I, I have to make editorial decisions. And, and I'm always trying to make sure that what's presented is the most impactful to the listeners. So, I mean, Got it. someone, you know, that's as, as accomplished as yourself, you know, people want to know, well, how how did you get to where you're at? You know, and I think, you know, some of what you said really kind of like, paints a picture of, you know, this is how I got there because when I was growing up, I saw these injustices and I said, hey, that's not right and I wanted to do something about it. So I decided to go. So all of that is part of the whole journey. So that that's fine. Okay, cool. Because question number two is what inspired you to pursue your doctorate? Okay, cool. Because most people don't know that initial stuff, so I was like, oh, I'll give a little extra. There you go. There you go. There you go. School them up. <laughs> yeah, I think oftentimes, especially with the role I'm in, or you'll see that I went to Columbia or that I have the doctorate, people assume that you come from a different environment mm-hmm. than you actually came from. Mm-hmm. So, yes, great. All right, I'll stop interrupting you. But Blame it on these perfectionist tendencies. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, I'm like, I've never seen the editing process. I'm like, wait, you're going to edit this, right? (laughs) (laughs) And like I I have mentioned to you in one of our either emails or texts, that's the the, the biggest part of this job is the editing. Because that's where the interview's over. You got all of this footage all of this audio tape, all this audio, um, you know, information, and now you got to make it impactful. And that's what the editor does. And so... Are you pausing, like, right now? No, no. One of the things I learned a long time ago in in, in broadcast production when I studied in in community college, Professor Stevens used to always say, let the take roll. So... As soon as you picked up and said hello, I was recording. So, because oh really? Yeah, because and, 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 then, and you know that got reinforced actually, because you know when I when I was like kind of really trying to continue to fine tune my craft, you know, I was I re, I read all these articles about you know podcasts and how to make them great and how to make them you know impactful so you can attract sponsors. And one of the things that reinforced what uh, Professor Stephen said many, many years ago, they said, when you do a podcast, as soon as the guest says hello, turn on the recorder because they may say something and, and, and not to shit cut it off after you say, and thank you for listening. Let the tape keep rolling because 
they may say something afterwards and you're like, wow, I wish I would have got that. So all of this. So this is going to be a really, really interesting project because then I have to say, okay, now we were talking about this. And sometimes, Lakia, I'll say, wow, I like what she said there, but that would go better following this. So I'll take a whole chunk of what somebody said and move it to someplace else. So I kind of like mm, interesting. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And and that not to change what the person said. You know, I never do. That's never the intent. The intent is wow. Because remember, I said the first, the, the, the last question answer leads to the first question. And sometimes somebody says something, and like that's a great point, and that should go here, because maybe somebody said it, and then they said it in a different more profound way something like that so it's 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 a, I, I love this stuff man like like i said <laughs> i know i can hear your passion and enthusiasm for it and for me i'm thinking wow this is a lot of work <laughs> what, yeah. but it also um what i like about it is it's an art and it's it's a craft and i can tell that you take pride in it and so again which is another reason why I felt comfortable enough to have this conversation with you because I, I sense your pride and your enthusiasm for it and you're wanting to do like a good job with yes. whatever you're doing. So yes. I definitely get that. It comes across. Well, thank you so much. And that, that's always been, been my MO is like try to do, do the very best possible job that I could do. And a uh, matter of fact, I was going through some of my paperwork and I found uh, a bookmark and it had this profound statement and the statement simply says, and it doesn't say who, who wrote it. And you, you'd appreciate something like this. The statement says this, what could be more important in life than to know that in everything we have tried to do, we have done our best. Oh, I like that. Yes. Yes. So, I like that. You know, Having a growth mindset is very important to me. So, yeah, well, yeah that, that comes, definitely resonates. That comes across because, and you know, and I, and I, and I, and I am sure we're going to talk about the whole vulnerability because I, I just love, like, you know, like last week um, when you said, yeah, who's, <laughs> who, who's afraid of public speaking? Raise your hand. <laughs> and yes, and I'm terrified. And I went and I did it anyway. <laughs> and it came out well. I was like, yeah. Isn't that funny? It's something that the old me would never do. Mm. Why, why would I admit publicly that I don't like doing something that is a part of my role as a CEO of an organization that I should enjoy or just be good at. But I've learned along the way that I need to be authentic and transparent and many other people are experiencing and thinking the same thing and it allows us to connect and it allows me to be more real to more people by sharing my authentic truth. Like I really, I kid you not Silas. I gosh, I do not like being on video. Mm. I do not like hearing my voice recordings, public speaking in person. I'll be like, hi, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. But when you want me to get on stage, 
I don't care if I know everyone there or not. All of a sudden, I'm clammy. All of a sudden, I'm shaking. I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I, it's very, very challenging for me. And one of the things that I've heard is that it doesn't appear that way to mm-hmm. others. And because it doesn't appear that way to others, people will think that, nah, you're, that's not true. You're just saying that, or they'll doubt you because you don't come across that way when you actually do it. But I mean, if you did a palm check, or if you put a camera to my leg you would see the jitters and the nerves and the anxiety there have been times where I've spoken in public and afterwards people are like wow that was great I'm like what did I say (laughs) was it good they said you know the two greatest fears that all people have in life are death and speaking in front of a crowd. So I've always been in front of her. I'm, I'm, I'm from the entertainment field. I, I was a professional mobile entertainment disc jockey and master of ceremonies. I played all over the tri-state area here, out, out here in New York. You know, I've been invited to public speak at, you know, many of the universities, especially, you know, when I went back to school and got my social work degree. One of the things that I learned is... One of my professors, and I have a uh, 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 my bachelor's from Brooklyn College. I had a dual bachelor's in broadcast journalism and public communication. So one of my professors said that when you get ready to speak in front of a crowd or when you get ready to speak um, before, you know, for an interview, if you're not nervous before, then there's something wrong. It's a natural process for a person to be nervous. And the reason for that is because you're nervous because you want to do a good job. You're not nervous because you think you're going to mess up. You're nervous or people are nervous in general because they want to do a good job. They want to say something impactful. They want to leave the audience with something to think about. And that's really what comes across in the way that you you do some of your presentations. Now, I'm going to share a really funny story with you. About my, I like funny stories. My public speaking, and it also is a tribute to my late foster mother, uh, who passed away many years ago. So, in the in the town that I grew up in, in Amityville, Long Island, there was a music group, uh, you know, guys that I knew, and I, I always wanted to, you know, kind of be on the scene. And I had a show where I was used to be a DJ, and and I recorded shows, and it used to be played in a station in, in New Jersey. So anyway, I was always on the music scene and I always loved music. And so I got recruited to be the uh, the MC for this group. And so the group used to perform at various local venues. And so I would be the one to go out and introduce them. I would hype the crowd up and then I would introduce them. So one night I was at this one of the main venues in Amityville and I did my spiel. I said, okay, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you call the radio station and, you know, we got to make sure that they get a lot of plays on this record so it can move up the charts. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Amityville's own final edition. And I turned around to, to put my hand out for them to come out. And the lead, the band leader, stuck his head out, shook his head, and he did the, the cutthroat thing, like, we're not ready yet. <laughs> I was like, I, 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 oh, oh, oh. 
So I turned around. You're like, no. And I, I, I was befuddled. I was off kilter. I was all out of sync. I got through it. I went by my mother's house, you know, the next day, and I told her what happened. And I said, Mommy, I said, I introduced the band and, and they weren't ready. So I started stuttering and I didn't know what to say. And she looked me in the eye, Lakia, and she says, let me tell you something. From now on, wherever you go, whenever somebody calls you up to say something, you make sure that you always have something to say. And ever since then, I've never been at a loss for words. I've made a lot of mistakes, but I always had something to say. And I share that to say, if you make a mistake, so what? So in broadcasting, they said the sign of a good announcer is not the one that doesn't make a mistake because we all make mistakes. The sign of a good announcer is the one that makes a mistake, doesn't let the mistake throw them off their game. So as you go out and you do your presentations, if you make a mistake, so what? <laughs> so what? <laughs> Just keep on going. You know, and, and I learned that that day when I was like, oh, I don't know what to say. So now somebody called me up to speak. I always got something to say. And I told somebody once and they, they, they got a, a kick out of it. I said, I never saw a microphone I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> and now you have your own podcast. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so <laughs> I'm loving having this conversation. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you know what? You know what? See, my mind is always, you know, you know, working. Wheels are always spinning. Uh-huh. Something. What are you thinking? Uh, a, a, a conversation with Lakia. Just a whole separate podcast. Just about two people just talking. <laughs> just chit-chatting about a yeah. bunch of random things. It's funny. It's so funny you say that because you mentioned growing up in Long Island and you mentioned your foster mom, then you mentioned. And so the, the former clinical social worker in me who will always be part of me, mm-hmm. I immediately start picking up some of the things, some of the details you said, mm-hmm. and I wanted to ask more questions and I had to stop myself. I literally was like, Lakia, this is not your interview. Don't start interviewing Silas. This is not yours. <laughs> so you know, and it, so 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 then now um, now because this, this trust me, and I and I'm and I'm sure you would agree. This won't be the last time we we converse. Uh, this won't be the last time we're um, on microphones being recorded. So you know, going forward, because I had already told Dawn. That, you know, like I got some ideas I want to kind of kick back and forth between, you know, the three of us. But, you know, now that you just said that, you know, maybe a podcast like just like what you said and just kind of like analyzing. Well, OK, so this guy, he did this or this client, he did it. So how would you analyze that and just kind of like dissect and how would you help that person? Something like that would be very interesting because. A lot of people don't know that that's one of the skills that we have. See, they don't know that. They don't know that we can sit down and assess and diagnose somebody. That's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because I want to educate people to all the different types of things that we can do. And like you said earlier, nobody realized that a social worker could do. No, you didn't even realize that a social worker could do what, what, what you were told that a social worker does. And so. The majority of the people out there in the public 
They hear social worker, same thing. You take people's kids away and you help people get food stamps. That's all they know about <laughs> social workers. That's it. They don't know anything about True. about us and all the different areas that we can work in. They don't know that by having a social work degree and a social work education, you can work in any industry and any with any population and any vocation on this planet, period, hands down, bar none, as a social worker. And most people don't know that. So, Which is unfortunate for our profession and for social workers. Yes, and that's why uh, this is the platform to educate people to that. So now, so, so you have your doctorate and you started out in one direction and you wound up uh, Dr. Lakia Cherry, a doctorate in social work. How did you, what, what made you move into that area? Because that was a very profound and very uh, gratifying experience for you. And I could tell by some of the comments that you made and the fact that you, I, I believe if I'm correct, you're the first person in your family to actually graduate from college, if I'm correct. You're correct. Okay. So I'm a first-generation college student. I'm the first person in my family to get a bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctorate degree. Wow. To be honest. I I had interest in obtaining a doctorate degree many, many years ago, probably around my mid-20s, but I was still paying off student loans from my master's degree, so I was too worried about the additional expense of obtaining a doctorate degree that I kind of put those hopes and dreams to the side. And then as I got further in my career, especially having worked with the Network for Social Work Management for a few years, it just felt like something I no longer needed now that I had a CEO title and I had been working in a macro capacity for many years. And then USC, Suzanne DeVort, Tech School of Social Work, uh, began promoting their new online DSW program, mm. which was focused and geared towards people like me. Mm. And so the target audience were social workers interested in innovation, entrepreneurship, social change, social impact. And those are things that interest me. Um, it was for social workers interested in leadership and working in a leadership capacity within an organization or starting their own organization or a company. And because I was already doing some of this work with the network, when I learned about this particular program, I began paying attention. Admittedly, I had contacts within the network who were affiliated with the school and the program, and they would often tell me information about it, which piqued my interest. And finally, I mean, I heard enough where I decided if I'm already doing much of this work, why not? Why not get yes. the degree? Yes. But then also, everyone who applies for the program, you have to choose a grand challenge. I don't know if you're familiar with the grand challenges, but there are 12 grand challenges for social work. They just released the 13th one, which is on racism. And when you apply for admittance into the program, you have to choose one of these grand challenges that you want to focus on during the um, two years that you're in the program. So one of the grand challenges is achieve equal opportunity and justice, which 
resonates well with me um, and my interests. I mentioned that I've always had an interest in social justice, that I previously worked on political campaigns. I considered a career um, in politics at some point. And so when I saw that grand challenge and I thought about the work I do within the network, I saw obtaining a doctorate degree as a way to pursue an area of interest that I otherwise might not have the time to pursue, if that makes sense. So those are two of the reasons. But then the third reason, which I think oftentimes isn't talked about, this was, I think, one of the primary reasons because I'm not getting any younger. I've had my master's degree for about 13 years now. Mm -hmm. I have been in the field for a while. I've done micro and macro work, but I'm still a black woman in society. And I know, and I've been raised to know that I always have to work harder and do a little bit more to be recognized and get the same opportunities that others might have access to. And so thinking about that alongside the opportunity to research something that I'm really interested in and the fact that I was already doing a lot of this work um, with the Network for Social Work Management, all three of these um, these things I just mentioned are reasons why I decided to go forward and become Dr. Cherry. Okay, all right. And all those things kind of came together in a synergistic type of way, so that makes a lot of sense. Now, one of the things that I found very interesting um, Lakia, is that your dissertation was on change makers of color. Uh, can you explain that and why that became the focus of your dissertation? Okay. So I did a capstone, um, our DSW program, we do capstones instead of dissertations. And so I focused on the racial leadership gap within the nonprofit sector, being a woman of color in a leadership role. I realized when I first got started that this wasn't the norm, that there weren't to be people who look like me in leadership roles. Initially, I didn't really think about it too much because I'm used to being an only. I'm used to being one of the only persons of color in my class. I'm used to being one of the only black people within a room. I'm used to being in settings where all of the leaders aren't of color. So, Initially, I didn't really pay too much attention to it, but with the network, my board and I were beginning to explore, this is a few years ago, Silas, we were beginning to explore what additional programming we could create that would meet the needs of some of our members. And thinking about this, we began to think about the unique needs of social workers of color and human service workers of color within our audience. And we decided that we were going to create a program called, um, originally it was supposed to be like the Emerging Leaders of Color Institute or something like that. And it was going to be geared towards persons of color within the sector and giving them additional access to mentoring and other supports that they might need. We were doing research and around the time we were doing research and crafting the game plan for this new initiative, the Building Movement Project released a report called Race to Lead. 
And it basically confirmed everything that we had thought with regards to there being disparities um, in terms of who's a leader and who's not within our sector. Mm-hmm. Around the time, it was like well over 85% of leaders within the sector are white. And that was just shocking to me. It's one of those things where people can say, yeah, I know, or I assumed, but the data doesn't tend to lie. And so when you see the facts and you're reading the facts and you're learning more about the reasons behind a particular issue, it's just, yeah, it's, it gives validation in a different way. And so with that, I decided that this was going to be my focus for the doctoral program. I was going to utilize my platform as a woman of color in social work to bring greater attention to these disparities in leadership within our sector. Mm -hmm. To me, um, as you know, social justice is one of our core values. And so for social justice to be a core value of ours within social work, but there to be disparities in terms of who's a leader and who's not, that just didn't make sense to me. And so I wondered if it's just something that people didn't know about But the more research and digging I did, I saw that this has been an issue within the nonprofit sector for over 20 years, but people just don't know what to do about it, or they're stuck, kind of like how people in our country are stuck as it pertains to racial justice and equity and what this really looks like and means. And so you mentioned change makers of color. That's a component of the work. The motto I created, it's change makers of color. It's a hybrid model. So the first part is focused on addressing the unmet needs of people of color in our sector, especially those who aspire to leadership. People of color tend to lack, people of color tend to lack access to mentors, coaches, and overall social capital. And it hinders their likelihood to lead within the workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, Those who have access to these things have greater odds of leading. But with that said, there's still systemic racism. And so we live in a world where there's structural racism, there's systemic racism, and it's existed forever. And so in spite of systemic racism, people of color who have a mentor or who have a white network, they're going to have greater odds and consideration of these other barriers than those who don't. So at Change Makers of Color, I created a program where leaders of color can apply to the network to become a change maker. And then for a year, they receive mentoring, coaching, training, as well as access to new and diverse networks so as to expand their social capital. So that's the first component of the model. And then the second component of the model is the inclusion of equity allies. That's a term I made up, and it's essentially white people in the sector who are intentional with utilizing their privilege and power to help dismantle oppressive systems. Um, what is the term again? Per- I'm sorry, can you repeat that term? I like that. It's equity allies. Equity allies, okay. Mm. Yeah, and so the gist of equity allies is 
many people in our profession, um, many people outside of social work who work in non in the nonprofit sector, they may say that they're committed to social justice, that they care, that they do this work because of this commitment to social justice. And so my equity allies concept is basically, it's a prove it concept. Beyond just saying that you have these values, prove it. So if you're a white person in the sector who has privilege and power and you have these values, prove it by utilizing your privilege and power to help be a bridge to access of access and opportunity for people of color. And that's essentially what I researched. I looked at social capital. I looked at social networks. I looked at the impact that networks um, that aren't diverse can have on contributing to unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. So if 90% of leaders in our sector are white, and the majority of their friends and their community and those they socialize with are white, so it's homogenous networks, homogenous groups, then without them intentionally knowing it, sometimes, you know, it may be implicit, but sometimes not, um, they may just go with someone that they know or that they're more comfortable with. And it's, it's not always intentional. But if your network is more diverse, it's unlikely that this is going to happen because you're going to have a greater pool of connections and people to think of and to consider when opportunities arise. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. Now, you use the term, and we hear it a lot in in the social work circles and human services, um, but for our listeners that may not be familiar, can you break down social capital? I think it's important that listeners who are new to this jargon really understand what that's about. Okay. I would say the easy explanation for social capital is um, the, the extent of your networks and your access. And so if you know a lot of people, um, that's a form of social capital. Mm-hmm. If these people are of a certain demographic that may increase your social capital. Mm -hmm. If these people have wealth, that may be a plus, plus, plus to your social capital. And the more diverse your network is with regards to people, um, their race, their socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm. their education, their experience, their knowledge, that all contributes to your social capital. And so, for example, I mentioned that I'm a first-generation college student Mm -hmm. who came from San Bernardino. I didn't grow up knowing a lot of people who went to college, who were in leadership roles, but I participated in activities where I had mentors. Um, Many of these mentors had went to college or they were in positions that I never heard of or learned that I should aspire to. And through my connections with them, I began to learn more because my social capital was expanded. Um, Other examples 
you might not know that you shouldn't do something, but if you know someone who's done it because of, because they've been there and they've had access and they've experienced that they can teach you. And so for people of color who not all people of color, obviously are first generation, but for those of us who are first generation, having, having that access to someone in a workplace who can say, Hey, you need to do this. Let me show you the ropes. Let me be your guide, your supporter, your confidant. It makes a significant difference. It really does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that uh, became very apparent to me early on was something that one of my professors, uh, when I was studying communications, said. And, and it kind of lends itself to the whole concept of social capital, and that's networking. So, and, and what he said was, when you meet somebody and, you, and you, you form a relationship, he said, as soon as you meet that person and you form a relationship, you now know everybody that that person knows. And that's how your network grows. So kind of like, like you meet somebody and they're in media or you meet somebody and they're in law. Okay, that expands your base of people or contacts that you know and so when exactly that, when that base expands now everybody that they know you now know and if you happen to feel like it's something that you need to get done they may know somebody that can help you get that done and you now have access to that person where if you hadn't expanded your network then you would not have had access to the person that this person knows somebody that knows somebody. And so I think when you say social capital is very important because that's how the status quo, that's how they get to the next level by having somebody open the door or, you know, hold a position for them. Things of that sort become very, very important when it comes to uh, leveling the playing field. So I like the fact that you talk about, uh, was it equity allies? Exactly. Yeah. Equity allies. Now, one of the things that's, that that's come about in the last almost nine months is um, the whole concept of we've peeled back so many layers in this country that a lot of the disparities are now being um, out in the open more so than they've ever been. So what role do you see um, our professional social work playing in addressing the inequities that BIPOC communities have always faced, but are facing now much more critically than ever? Well, good question. This is something I'm going to be honest that I'm still trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. I think most social workers should have already been aware of all of the inequities that people face. Um, it's been pronounced more for general society, but I think most social workers should have already been aware of this. And when you think about our role in terms of addressing it, um, I mean, our, our, our profession, it's, it's split in many ways. There's 
micro social workers, there's meso social workers, there's macro social workers. So I think on the individual level, we all have a role to play depending on who we are, where we are with the stuff, with our work. Um, many of us are playing that individual role, but I think as a profession, we could play a greater role if people in society recognize us beyond those who take children or those who pass out food stamps, as you previously mentioned. And so I think of the last few months of the pandemic, there was so much recognition of frontline workers, but you never heard, or I never saw at least fires or, banners thanking social workers yes i saw everyone thanked but a social worker Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yet we're frontline workers and we we do this work all the time not just during a pandemic and we weren't recognized as essential when others were recognized as essential and i think that's problematic because if people don't see us that way to what extent can we really have a macro impact? We can continue to have a micro impact, Mm -hmm. but if we're not perceived as having the power to implement change in a great way, then I don't know, Silas, I just don't know. Well, that's a very profound point that you, uh, that you just highlighted. And, 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 and in keeping with the whole concept of, you know, the pandemic and, and, and all the, uh, the protests and racial tension. The social work profession, and you mentioned it um, previously when we've talked, and, and it's very well known that the social work profession is going right now through a reckoning of their history and its role in systemic racism. Where do you see there's, there any, any, any room for some real hard changes to be made within our profession because now you have a lot of agencies organizations rather that are, you know, they're having these workshops and, and, and a lot of people are coming forward and saying, yeah, the discrimination um, and racism exists in society, but it also exists within our profession. What are your thoughts on that? And, and, and how can that be changed around? One of the things that I think would help is it the equity allies, but how can we get our profession to be more just and more uh, anti-racist? Wow, you're hitting me with the hard questions. Good questions, though. Very important questions. Yes, we have had this conversation before. I Social work isn't perfect. Um, no profession is social work. No, sorry, excuse me. No profession is perfect. Uh, social workers are people. We're all flawed. And I think that when we portray social work in a way that it's a savior or that it's the superhuman group of people, I think that's a mistake because at the end of the day, we are people who are human, who are just as flawed as everyone else. And you mentioned that social work is having a reckoning and I think the reckoning is happening because we've gone far too long without checking ourselves. Mm. And so most of us come into this profession because we care about the vulnerable. We want to enact change. Uh, We come with good intentions, but 
our good intentions don't always have the impact that we that we would hope for, that we thought that it should, or that it should have. And so I think that um, we need to kind of scale back from just being the helpers and really commit to looking at ourselves, checking ourselves, um, checking our biases, uh, and not just once, you know, not reading a book, not taking just the implicit bias test, and that's good enough. Mm. We should constantly <laughs> be checking ourselves. Yes. We should constantly be mindful of, you know, how we're showing up in our interactions with clients and others within the community. Um, who's in our network? I mean, just because you're a social worker, again, doesn't mean that you can't have biases. We all have biases. Yeah. Everybody has biases. Absolutely. I have biases. Um, but then again, I mentioned who's in your network matters. And so if your group of friends isn't diverse, if who you socialize with in the workplace isn't diverse, then that contributes to a certain way of thinking, certain norms, which again is why we need to constantly be educating and checking ourselves. I don't believe that anyone can be anti-racist. I believe that it's, it's life work. We will daily, hopefully be working towards being an anti-racist and having these ideas and values, but we're going to, we're flawed. So we'll make mistakes along the way. We'll learn from it, and then we'll pick up and we'll continue the work. It's continued work. We're working towards becoming anti-racist, but we're not just anti-racist. Right. The profession can't just be anti-racist. That's impossible. Yes, yes, I agree 100%. Now, uh, your uh, journey just uh, has taken you to a place of very, very exciting accomplishment, and that is the launch of your own LLC. Uh, tell our listeners what that journey was like and uh, a little bit about launching it and you know what, what, what spurred you to start your own company. Okay. You threw me for a loop with this, with this one. I'm like, oh, I didn't think you were going to ask this. Okay. So, okay. The journey for entrepreneurship. Oh, my gosh. So... I never thought that I could have my own business, that I'd ever start my own business. But along the way, I have learned a lot. I've done a lot of things. I've created a lot of things. And one day I just had this epiphany. What if you devoted some of this time and effort towards yourself and your business and focusing on your interests? And Admittedly, I had heard from people for many years, oh, you should start your own business. Oh, you should do this. You should do that. And for me, I just saw it as a lot of work. Plus, I doubted my ability to do it. Why? Once I, yeah, I know. You, you say why? Yes, why? That's okay. I think that's important. <laughs> this is, no, no. Okay. Many reasons. This is going to sound silly, but... <laughs> Health insurance is expensive, and I know business owners, and I see how hard they hustle. Um, most of the business owners I know aren't social workers, and 
they have more training and more of a business acumen. Mm -hmm. Uh, The social workers who I know have their own business. Most of them are clinical and they're therapists who might own their own private practice. But I've observed the entrepreneurs in my life for many years. And while it seems exciting sometimes, I also see the other side of maybe making a mistake in terms of billing or having difficulty figuring out the tax implications or getting paid late from someone who should ideally have paid you on time. And so I've watched all of these things and it just seemed very daunting to me. It just seemed more idea to have your quote unquote nine to five, go to work, get your benefits, come home. Um, but <laughs> seriously, that, I mean, that has always been touted kind of as the American dream. Entrepreneurship, yeah, but again, I don't think you see too many social workers outside of private practice who are entrepreneurs or who have LLCs and consulting and training businesses. But over the last year, my confidence has increased a lot, um, especially as it pertains to my abilities. I definitely credit the DSW program for that. Um, They really push you off there. I mentioned that I don't love public speaking, but I was constantly having to speak in class. I was constantly having to do things that I didn't want to do. And so it sharpened me a lot. Mm -hmm. And through that sharpening, I began focusing on my own branding and promoting myself and showing people who I am. And through doing that, people started contacting me with opportunities and the old Lakia would take those opportunities for free because I was so humbled and thankful to be thought of in that way or to be asked to do something, but I'm busy and I have a lot going on and I realized it was taking me a lot of time to prepare for things or things that I agreed to do for free, they were charging Mm -hmm. and I was never offered anything. It wasn't even part of the conversation. Um, I started thinking about social work and conversations around low pay and negotiation and yeah, just a lot of work on myself. And I realized I don't exactly know fully what my business is going to be about because I have a lot of interests and there's a lot of things I can do, but why not start something and start getting paid for what you're already doing? Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're speaking, if you're spending 10 plus hours working on a presentation, what is it about you that would lend to you not getting paid for that? Mm-hmm. Why not you? And that is why I started it. Um, I don't have a website that's active yet. I haven't fully come up with a mission yet. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if I'm going to narrow my scope. Uh, these are all things I haven't figured out. But what I do know is that 
there are things that I can do and that I can offer to people. And as the opportunities come, I'm going to take them, but I also deserve to get paid for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. They say start small and grow tall. So you, you, <laughs> you, you, you have a lot of things going on. And uh, one of the things that I, I uh, was impressed to learn is that uh, your organization, uh, the uh, Network for Social Work Management, has gone global. Um, and, and I learned about that by listening to your July 2nd uh, virtual coffee hour chat with Miss uh, Jennifer Lunar. Uh, what do you attribute to the growth of um, the Network for Social Work Management to start to evolve into this global entity? I would definitely attribute social media and technology um, in addition to us changing our model. So I would say the term gone global isn't necessarily accurate, but what I meant by it when I said it um, during that coffee chat, we have an international presence. And so the network was founded over 30 years ago and it was primarily U.S.-based and it was started in 1985 as a membership association and it was primarily social work managers and executives Within the United States, um, there was a few hundred members, but over seven years ago, the network board decided to get rid of dues and to make the network more accessible to more people because they realized that all social workers um, should have the ability to network and connect with each other and expand their leadership and their management capabilities. And by removing dues, it would just make what we do more accessible. And so by doing that, that limited um, a barrier, that took away a barrier for people. So people could just join and sign up for free and have access to a lot of what we do and what we offer. But then on the other end of it, Twitter became very popular. LinkedIn became very popular. Facebook, Instagram, and I worked at a tech startup that did some work around social media. And so when I worked at the startup company, I used to pay attention to what they were doing um, in the social media world, um, how they were utilizing technology and platforms. And because I was no, lo no longer working in a clinical capacity where people are often concerned about HIPAA and other um, guidelines, I realized this could be beneficial for growing the network and expanding our reach. So when I became, I first started as the executive director of the network and then I was promoted to CEO. But when I first started with the network almost seven years ago, one of my first goals was to make people increase our brand so that people actually knew who we were because prior to me, learning about the job and interviewing for the job, I had never heard of the network for social work management. And I was a manager, but I had never heard of the network for social work management. So I thought that was problematic because for me as a social work manager, I didn't know how to manage. Right. I didn't know what to do because I wasn't taught these things in school. And so I was searching the internet and reading books and reviewing documents and articles and things from other sectors in order to learn more about leadership and how to be a good manager. So 
So one of my first goals when I came to the network was to increase our visibility so that more people would know that we're here and have access to us. And in doing that, particularly through social media, we began to increase um, our international audience. Um, Things that we have done internationally, admittedly, a lot of our work is still national, but a few years ago, probably about a year and a half ago, we had a partnership with Beijing Normal University, Mm. and we went to China three times, um, three years in a row. So the first um, year we went to Beijing, and we trained um, social workers in mainland China about our human services management competencies. So we did a week-long training teaching them about executive leadership, resource management, strategic management, community collaboration. And then the next year, we were invited back. Then we went to Zhuhai, China. And again, it was about 75 to 80 um, Chinese social workers, where again, we were training them and teaching them about leadership and management. And then... Again, we came back to Zuhai and we did another training, but at that last training, they wanted to know a little bit more about supervision and they wanted it to be a little bit more um, practice-based. And so we taught them about role-playing and we had different scenarios where they would pretend to be a boss or a manager and an employee and they'd work on learning supervision techniques. And so we did that in China for three years. And then a few years ago, we went to Santiago, Chile, Mm -hmm. and we led a grant workshop in Chile. Wow. So so then, yes, you can say that you've gone global because you've expanded outside of the borders of the U.S. And so I I think that's really exciting um, that, you know, that you can see that type of growth. And obviously, uh, the, the whole concept of, you know, training social workers in management, you know, that, that kind of leads me to, to something I, I want to kind of just touch on, you know, as we get ready to segue, you know, to the close. And that is uh, there, there are many social workers who have achieved their, their doctorates and there are many social workers who have achieved um, executive director or CEO uh, status. But we don't hear about them when they get up to those upper echelons and I think personally and professionally that does a lot of harm for the profession because it doesn't teach those students in social work school what they can hope to aspire to and do do, do you have any any kind of suggestions on you know what what can we as a profession do to make sure that when people get to CEO level and they get to doctorate level that they constantly let everybody know, but I'm a social worker. Yes, I'm an executive director, but I'm a social worker. Because we really don't hear that enough, and I think it would be really beneficial to students. So could you kind of give us some input on that? Because I know you and I had that conversation as well. Yeah. Well, we need to increase the profile of social workers. So this goes back to what I was saying with regards to the pandemic and whether or not social workers were seen as essential workers. Uh, We all know that there's many social workers who were working on the front line who are still on the front line on a daily basis, but 
we didn't see the recognition publicly. And so I think if we had targeted campaigns elevating the profile of social workers beyond just clinical social workers, beyond caseworkers, that more people would begin to have respect for our profession and see us in different ways. But then I think those who get in those roles would feel proud to say, yes, I'm a social worker. Part of what you mentioned, it's public perception. But the other part is once you get in that role, if you're a social worker, how come you're not telling people you're a yes, social worker? Yes, that's the issue. And that's the part I don't think people talk about all the time is how come you're not talking? How come you're not publicly saying it? Yeah, I'm a social worker. Mm-hmm. How come you're not waving the social worker brand- banner proudly? Yeah. And I think you're not. I think many people are not because of the public perception. And so once you get to a certain role, I think people feel that they will be respected more or seen a certain way or given more opportunities if they no longer say that they are a social worker. I've met many people where a few years ago, I decided that I wanted to start going to conferences with people from other professions and disciplines Mm -hmm. that I wanted to learn from them and that I didn't want to continue going to the same things with the same people and the same information that I, I, it was time for me to branch out. And so I went to different festivals. I went to Ted women. I went to Stanford, not Stanford, the fast company innovation festival. And I tell people, they'd be like, Oh, what do you do? And I always say I'm a social worker and CEO. And they always say, Never fails, Silas. Never fails. Oh, you're a social worker? Mm. (laughs) Like the tone would almost change. So it would be, oh, you're a social worker? Oh, that's so nice. You do such good work. Or, oh, oh, you're you're paid so low. Mm. How can you afford to live? Or you're a social worker? Like, why are you a social worker and you're here? Yeah, what what made you go into that profession? (laughs) Exactly. And so... As soon as you bring it up, you could see other people's biases about our profession and what they think of us. I even mentioned I never wanted to be a social worker. I thought social workers, you know, were baby snatchers or people who took away kids. I didn't know that they did more until I was out of college, until I was out of undergrad. And I think once we instill like kind of campaigns and even just pride. I think a lot of times we go through these programs and we're learning and we're growing, but you should be learning and growing in your program, how to promote yourself, how to elevate not only your own brand image, but how to elevate the brand and image of social work itself. And so some of those things aren't taught people aren't necessarily taught how to network in our programs. Mm -hmm. Um, I think networking is something that most people learn along the way. I'd say in business programs, you probably learn how to network. Uh, But in social work, we need to learn how to network. We need to learn how to promote ourselves. It's not bad to market and promote ourselves. And I think some of these old views and ideas, you know, it's not about me. It's not about the money. Yeah, yeah, but it kind of is. 
you know, and, but it kind of is. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I guess maybe about two years ago, I was uh, a guest on uh, Li News Radio one hundred three point nine, uh, just kind of talking about the social work profession. And um, this, this was my second time on the show, and the first time on the show, the host, very, very, very nice gentleman, Scott Possessor. You know, he said, you know, like, let's be honest, you know, social workers, you know, they don't, they really don't make that much. And, you know, so, so I, so I kind of said, listen, you know, we, we have to dispel the myth because it, it, it's, it's really a myth that's not founded and based in reality. So my second time on the show, I, I knew he was going to ask that again. So I went and I did some research and I, I am a member of a NASW, National Association of Social Workers, and I went on their website and I did some research and, and, and I mapped out entry level, mid-level, and executive level, and the starting salaries and the salaries for mid-level and the salaries for, for C-level C or C-suite levels. And I mapped it out and compared it to some other industries, and it was no difference. And when I, when I gave the numbers to the host of the show, he said, wow, I, I had no idea. Most people don't even know that as a social worker, you can make six figures. You, now, yes, you're going to be on the executive level. You're going to be on the uh, executive director or CEO level. But you can make six figures as a social worker. And there's several social workers out there that do that. But they're not telling anybody <laughs> that they're social workers anymore. <laughs> So that's really where we, again, we have to change that narrative. You know, when they were out there, you know, like like helping people in the community, then they were proudly identifying themselves as a social worker. But like you said, as they worked their way up the ranks, they started less and less and less identifying as a social worker and trying to identify more with something that I guess they felt more prestigious. One of my mentors uh, from Stony Brook University who is going to be retiring um, at the end of this academic year, um, Dr. <clears throat> Dr. Jacqueline uh, Mondros, she said on various occasions that whatever you do and whatever your job function is, if you've got a degree in social work, say that you're a social worker and a research analyst. Say that you're a social worker and uh, a therapist and a behavioral modification uh, specialist. And I say that we come up with all these wonderful names. We call ourselves uh, behavioral modification specialists and psychotherapists. And we are all those things, but we are all those things because we're social workers. And that's really the, 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 uh, the emphasis that really needs to be put is that I got to this because of my studies in social work and here's all the different things that I can do. And I think if we all did that individually and collectively, that would help to raise the profile. So I'm glad, I'm glad you shared that um, with our listeners because that's something that I always try to do is um, say it loud, say it proud. I am a social worker and I make a difference. That's my battle cry. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I'm black and I'm proud. <laughs> <laughs> and that too. <laughs> <laughs> me too, Silas. Me too. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, Dr. Cherry, that brings us to the end of a very wonderful and engaging uh, interview. And what I like to do, two things at the end of a show. Number one, 
tell people if they like to reach out and contact you, if there's any way that they can contact you, how they can do that. And then the last thing I'd like for you to do is to leave our listeners with something that they can carry forth with them that you'd like for them to remember at the end of this interview. So um, I'm going to turn the floor over to you um, and tell people how they can contact you if they have questions about the network for social work management or anything that you do as a social worker, as a change maker of color. And then lastly, I'll leave our listeners with something. I like to say something profound that they can think about um, at the end of the show. All right. Well, thank you again, Silas, for this opportunity. I've loved chatting with you. You've definitely kept me laughing. Uh, So if anyone would like to get in touch with me or learn more about the Network for Social Work Management, go to www.socialworkmanager.org and you can register to become a member at no cost. If you'd like to speak with me or follow me, um, if you do a Google search of Lakia Cherry, uh, you should be able to find my Twitter account or my LinkedIn account. And from either of those platforms, you'll be able to contact me directly. And then in terms of, oh, go ahead. Uh, very good. And and I'm going to say to all my listeners, it does work because just yesterday I told one of my colleagues about it and she found you. So, yes, it does work. <laughs> <laughs> it's been tested, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so in terms of something, something profound, I don't really have anything profound to say, except that change starts with one person. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times people won't do anything because they're wondering where to start, what to do, do something. Doing something is better than doing nothing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) no, seriously, like it sounds so obvious and it sounds so basic, but you could sit and you can observe and you can question and you can hope and you can wonder. But at some point, Either you're just going to be your own pity party or you're going to get up and be an instrument towards change. And so we all have a role to play in the change we'd like to see in the world. And I mean, it takes intentionality and you have to start somewhere. So do something. Um, Don't be casual observers. Don't be complainers. Be people who are about action and do something. Very good. And I think on that note, we're going to wrap it up right there. That was a very profound note. And again, once again, everyone, um, you've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast with me, Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. And we've had a wonderful discussion with uh, my new friend and colleague, Dr. Lakia Cherry, uh, CEO of the Network for Social Work Management. Dr. Cherry, thank you so much for joining us and gracing our show with your presence. You're welcome, Silas. Thank you. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate and host of the show. You've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. This and all other programs are available on the Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Anchor podcast platforms. Go to any search engine and type in Kelson on the Air in the search window to hear this show in its entirety. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelson Communications production.